Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for October 12th, 2022. Just a quick reminder, if you're looking for the DC books, that's on our DC Spotlight that came out yesterday. Rocky from Comic Boom and I discussed all the DC books. A couple of highlights include Batman versus Robin number two and the debut issue of Batman Incorporated. But be warned if you go and listen to that, that we do get into spoilers and characterization and plot points and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we also run down the news from New York Comic Con as it pertains to DC. So if you're looking for that stuff, just go and listen to yesterday's episode. Uh, so on the New Comics Wednesday episode, as always, spoiler free. I'm just going to talk about a few of the books I had a chance to read and my thoughts on them. Um, so, yeah, let's go ahead and get started. We have about, I think, 15 or 16 books to talk about today. Kicking it off with one that I've highly been anticipating, Namor, the Submariner, Conquered Shores. This is from writer Christopher Cantwell. Pasquale Ferry is the artist, Matt Hollinsworth on colors, Joe Caramagna on letters. For those that aren't aware, Christopher Cantwell was Eisner nominated for his Doctor Doom series that came out a couple of years ago. I've never been the biggest Doom fan, but in the hands of Cantwell, it that character really kind of spoke to me. He was relatable in a way that he'd never had been before. So I have similar feelings about Submariner, about Namor. He's always seemed like kind of a whiner to me. I guess it's the arrogance of the character. And that's kind of, he's supposed to be arrogant. You know, he's the ruler of a whole kingdom. And at various times he's been, sort of at war with the surface world and other times he's been more of an ally, but a very complex character and one that always seemed a little pretentious to me. So that has sort of changed in recent years. He's become, I don't want to say mellow, but maybe as he's, and it's so strange, right? Because he's one of the earliest Marvel characters all the way back from before they were called Marvel when they were called timely and Christopher Cantwell has a little bit a little bit of an essay in the back talking about that, and also Jim Raymond, the first Human Torch, uh, the Android Human Torch, and um, so it's so interesting because this is a character that's been around for so long, but has he ever had a a definitive run? I mean, John Byrne in the uh, early '90s tr tried to do um, a run that a definitive Namor run, and certainly. He was familiar with Namor from his time on Fantastic Four and Namor being a, you know, coming back from the golden age to show up in the Silver Age in Fantastic Four. Burn was a good choice for that, but it was very much of its time. I mean, he kind of recast Namor and maybe he pulled a little bit from his reboot of Superman with what he did with Lex Luthor, making him this sort of evil businessman. He kind of did the same thing with Namor, not, not necessarily evil part, but Namor you know, he put him in a suit and Namor tried to be a little more civilized. Again, it was, it was sort of of its time and I don't know how well it worked. It's been years since I've read it. It's fantastic art, you know, cl classic, clean John Byrne style with the square jaws and the big muscular torsos and whatnot. So uh, I still love it, even though I, I haven't read that stuff since it, it first came out. Um, I may go back and revisit it kind of inspired by what Cantwell is doing here. So I say all that to say that my 
kind of the way I perceive Namor is it's kind of complex. You know, I'm, I'm, I bought that first Namor series from Byrne because of Byrne, not because of Namor, because he was writing and drawing it. And I was a huge John Byrne fan um, and sort of feel the same way about this, right? Like I, I picked up the Doom series, not because I was a fan of Doom, but because Christopher Cantwell had impressed me with his writing and his characterizations, you know, time and again from his work on She Could Fly over at Dark Horse to his work in television on Halt and Catch Fire. So I I picked up that Doom series and I think I I didn't even dip into like issue number four. And then I immediately had to go back and track down the first three issues and just devoured them. And it was a series I looked forward to every month, like, you know, top of the pile was always reading it first. And he really earned earned my trust and and, uh, and kind of proved to me that that he was somebody that I should pay attention to in comics. And then his Iron Man run and you know other things that he's done, time and again, he has shown me that he has an insight into these characters. He sees them so similar to the way that I do in terms of the classic runs on characters. Uh, maybe it's because we're of a similar age. I'm not sure, but. Um, when I heard he was doing Namor, I was really excited because much like Doom, I think Christopher Cantwell has something he can say about the character that's going to to resonate with me. And it's not going to be sort of the mustache twirling uh, Namor that we've had in the past or the reluctant hero Namor that we've seen at various times, especially as a member of the Invaders or uh, an ally of Captain America, a member of the Avengers, what have you. So really looking forward to this. And this first issue didn't let me down. Uh, if you're not familiar, they've been talking a lot about the premise. So uh, I will, I guess, spoil that a little bit if you're not familiar at all. Um, but this is a story that takes place in the future after the earth has become flooded, basically. Uh, I won't get into how exactly that happens, but um, all of the earth is now the the realm of Atlantis, basically. Um, and, and Atlantis, obviously, long time, uh, under the rule of Namor. So in, in a way he's one, right? Like what he always wanted when we used to see those early fantastic four issues, him to come conquer the surface world. There's really not much of a surface world left to speak of. So is this a story about, okay, what, what do you do when you get what you always wish for? Well, that would sort of be the easy way out. Right. And what Cantwell's building here is something so different. It's Namor looking around going, Okay, I the the victory the, the struggle between Atlantis, uh, the victory that Atlantis achieved, or the struggle between surface world and Atlantis, like that that no longer exists. That's no longer relevant. So who is Namor now? You know, he always had to be kind of the champion of his people, and that's what put him at odds and and made him the antagonist, if not the villain, sometimes of these stories, but. When that's gone, when that struggle is no longer there, when he doesn't have to fight to be sure that his undersea kingdoms not being polluted or exploited or put in danger by possible you know, nuclear war or what have you from the surface world, then then what? Who who is Namor without that identity of uh, you know champion of Atlantis, as it were? Uh, and the answer is much more complex than you might think, and. You can see in this first issue that even Namor himself isn't sure. Even Namor himself is a bit conflicted. 
And that's the magic that I expected from Christopher Cantwell. And he delivered a hundred percent. The art from Pasquale Ferry is gorgeous. I mean, when you're talking about a surface world that's been flooded, obviously you're going to have a lot of waters. Um, you're going to have a lot of blues and greens and Matt Hollinsworth on the colors does a fantastic job. We do see a few old friends, old allies slash foes of, of Namor throughout this, but um, this is a fantastic start because the other thing that surprised me about this, you know, I expect it to be really good, but based on the things that I'd heard Chris say before at San Diego Comic-Con and in interviews and whatnot, um, I sort of expected this to be a little more of a melancholy piece, right? Um, when you see that main cover, that that's sort of what I expected. It, it's it, it's by Pascal Ferry and Namor sort of sitting on this this throne um, at like the top of a building, the corner of a, a building, and there's just a, just a few buildings poking up out of the water. Everything else is flooded, and he's sort of sitting there, leaning forward. Um, fist under his chin, thinking, pensive, reflecting. And that's sort of what I thought this was going to be, right? Namor thinking about his past and uh, maybe going, reliving some moments and going through regret and that sort of thing. Um, and sort of a, a reflection or an exploration of the character in a way um, and maybe sort of slower paced. And that's not what we got at all from Cantwell. This is, it's much quicker pace than I expected. It's much more, it's not that solitary story of, of Namor that I expected. There's uh, quite a few other uh, characters in the book. And it's clear that uh, as Chris explores Namor as a character, it's going to be through action, right? It's going to be through Namor giving himself a goal, giving himself a mission, and I love that. I love that surprise. I love that it's not this sort of, you know, standalone, solitary Namor at, at, you know, the end of the world, the kind of the only one of the few left, the only one left, perhaps, um, reflecting the, because this is who the character is, right? Um, he, he always has been a character of action, sometimes, um, to his detriment, right? He would, uh, leap before he looked um, that impetuousness has always been a part of the character. And it's clear this is a Namor that's, you know, a little older. I won't say wiser necessarily, because again, he's, he's clearly searching for something. And, and part of what he's searching for is his own identity, if you will. Like again, who is he in this, this current world in, in the world as it exists now? So I can't recommend this highly enough. Uh, if you're a Namor fan, which I don't, you know, in all my years of reading comics and meeting other comic fans and doing the podcast, whatever, I've never really met anybody who, when I ask them, hey, who's your favorite character? Somebody says Namor. I know they have to be out there. But I'm really curious about the people who are big Namor fans, how they're going to receive this. Um, because the characterization of Namor here, it, it does feel authentic. It does feel like Namor, but it also feels so different. There's... I don't want to say a, a calmness, but maybe maybe a bit of reserve from Namor. Um, and again, I, I attribute that to kind of the state of the world that Christopher Cantwell has established here, right? That 
that part of Namor, that hard edge that existed, that sort of chip on his shoulder that he always had because of the constant threat to Atlantis, that's, that's sort of gone, right? Because that, that struggle is over, right? The surface world lost. And again, when you take that hard edge away, what's left? Uh, does Namor himself even know? So again, a fantastic start, really intriguing, uh, highly recommended, gorgeous art, gorgeous colors. So definitely check it out. Definitely pick it up. Uh, okay. Let's go ahead and move on. Next book I'm going to talk about, also a Marvel book. It's uh, Captain Marvel number 42. This is from writer Kelly Thompson. Art is by Andrea DeVito. Colors by Nolan Woodard. Clayton Cowles does the letters. This is called the Chewy Center. For those not familiar, the name of Captain Marvel's cat is Chewy. This is the same cat you saw in the MCU Captain Marvel movie, uh, the one that clawed out one of um, Samuel Jackson, uh, Nick Fury's eyes. Uh, so he's half alien, half cat. And this uh, uh, issue also ties into the Axe event, the Avengers X-Men Eternals event, where the whole world is being judged by the progenitor, this ancient celestial that's been we wait, reawakened. And uh, Chewie doesn't escape, right? It's not just, we know uh, if you've been reading Axe, it's not just humans. It's anybody on Earth. It's, it's you know, Norse gods like Loki and Thor. It's humans, it's mutants, it's Eternals, it's Stevens. Everybody is being judged, and that includes Chewie. Um, I guess we should say all sentient beings. Um, so we saw at the end of last issue that L'Oreal was there of the Cree. She's on Earth, so yes, she's also going to be judged. Um, and her sister were fighting against uh, other inhabitants of New York who seem to be uh, being mind-controlled, turned into these almost zombie-like creatures. So they've got their hands full. And the main part of the story is is really from the, not necessarily the point of view, but it's following Chewie around um, as he goes around and does various things in Carol's building. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about the story itself, because I, I don't want to spoil. Um, but I love I love the title. How clever Chewie Center, you know, obviously refers to candy that, you know, has a a chewy center and the story is centered on chewy. So it makes perfect sense. I love the pun and I love the story. Um, it gives some context, even though it's focused on chewy, it, it gives context for Carol and who she is as a character. I always love to see L'Oreal show up. I, I love that Kelly Thompson gave uh, Carol Danvers, a sister who's fully Cree uh, half sister, if you will. So uh, I, I just, this is such a great title. I don't hear enough people talking about, what a fantastic writer Kelly Thompson is. Um, I've said it before. I love what Marguerite Stoll did on the character. I love what Kelly Sue DeConnick did, really. I mean, she, she's the one that, that sort of put Carol on the map. But for me, Kelly Thompson is the, the consummate Carol Danvers writer. She has, um, she writes the, the perfect Carol. You know, it's a perfect balance of Carol's flaws and her heroism and her, um, her, her drive to always do her best no matter what, and absolutely never give up. Um, and the humor that Kelly Thompson brings. So continue to be impressed with this title. Uh, it's one of those books where it's like, man, why isn't this thing nominated for an Eisner every year? Cause it, it really deserves it. So, uh, okay. 
Up next, another Marvel book, Amazing Spider-Man. We're up to issue number 11. Right there on the cover, you've got a hand holding the Hobgoblin mask, and it says, the Return of the Hobgoblin, but which one? This is from writer Zeb Wells. We have John Romita Jr. on pencils, Scott Hanna on inks, Marcio Menez on colors, Joe Caramagna does the letters. Um, we know that Norman Osborn, uh, after the events of the end uh the kindred storyline and the end of the Nick Spencer run on Spider-Man uh, with Sin Eater and all that. Norman Osborn supposedly has been cleansed of his sins. He's trying to turn over a new leaf, but Zeb Wells is constantly dropping hints or structuring the story in such a way that you, you just don't know. Can you really trust Norman Osborn? Uh, and even Peter is, is wary, right? Like he's always, I mean, there's just too much history there, both for Peter as a character and for us as readers to fully trust Norman. So Hobgoblin shows back up. Of course, Peter's going to have his suspicions about not necessarily whether uh, Norman is the Hobgoblin, but is Norman aware of of who the Hobgoblin is? Is he is he teaming up with him? Is he supplying him with um, with weapons or, or any of that sort of stuff? Uh, there's also some other characters uh, related to the Hobgoblin that are in this that show up here. It's great to see them. Um, Black Cat shows up. So a bit, a bit of a setup issue, but a lot of seeds planted, a lot of seeds planted going forward. And, you know, Spider-Man, he's got sort of the best rogues gallery in comics. Maybe it's the, the argument could be made for Batman, but it's definitely between them. If, if I had to pick, I think I would go with um, Spider-Man's rogues galleries, uh, rogues gallery as, as being better in terms of villains. Maybe it's just because I dislike the Joker so much. He's so overused. Um, but the Hobgoblin is not somebody that I ever, I mean, certainly a classic spider villain, a Spider-Man villain, but not somebody that I ever, that ever really resonated with me. Um, and he's had so many different iterations. Maybe that's why um, I can never really wrap my head around it. He was so many you know, different people at different times. And there was, uh, depending on which story you listen to, um, different writers or editors may have changed things that previous you know, writers and editors had planned, um, politics of, of, uh, of office life, I suppose. Um, but I think it sort of hurt the character in the long run for, as far as, um, him being a classic villain, right. Being, uh, somebody like a kingpin, you know, who's always, well, for the most part, always been the same person or a, a Dr. Octopus or uh, a, a Green Goblin, right? Uh, I know Harry was the Green Goblin as well for a little while, but not a, a super complicated plot unless you start getting into clones and, and that sort of thing, right? Which, again, when these characters, uh, when their storylines go on for decades, it's sort of hard to think up new stuff. So it's not surprising that things get complicated, but be that as it may, the, the Hobgoblin has one of the more complicated stories. Um, and it's been retconned and changed through, throughout the years. And so again, I just think that that's hurt him. So I like that Zeb Wells is, has, is bringing the Hobgoblin back. Curious to know what it is. There's a bit of a mystery here. Um, and there's a few hints uh, of what that, event is that we still don't know. Uh, but again, it's it's in the background. There's enough there to remind me of it that we still don't know, but it's not in the forefront with people talking about it to where it bugs me. 
because I've, I've talked about that at length before about how when it's shoved in our face, I just either tell us or, or let it go. I don't mind the, the tangential references to it because it makes sense for the story. Um, there's a scene here with Peter and another sort of anti-hero, I guess I'll, I'll call them, um, that makes reference to it. And again, I'm okay with that because it makes sense for the conversation. It doesn't feel like it's being brought up to remind us that, hey, this terrible thing happened and we still don't know what it is. That That's when it bugs me. So um, this is a pretty solid issue, bit of a setup issue. Um, the art from Ramita Jr., uh, I mean, what can I say? It's Ramita Jr. art. He, he does seem to be simplifying his style a little bit. Um, it doesn't seem quite so uh, blocky. Um, as it has in the past. So he definitely seems to be changing his, uh, his style or his styles uh, evolving uh, a little bit. So we'll see where this goes from here. Uh, next cover shows Peter and Hobgoblin flying on their respective uh, sleds toward each other, which is interesting right now that Peter has that mechanical bug, uh, if you will, that attaches to his back and, and can also fly much like a, a goblin glider. So it's uh, going to meet, Hobgoblin, whether it's just an old Hobgoblin, a new Hobgoblin, I'm not sure who's under the mask at this point, uh, but he's going to meet him on a little more equal footing, um, as it were. So I, I do find that to be interesting. Uh, all right. Next up from Marvel, uh, another Axe tie-in, Avengers X-Men Eternals, Death to the Mutants. This is issue number two from writer Kieran Gellin. Guillaume Villanova is the artist, Alex Gormes and Eric Arsenega uh, do the colors, Travis Lanham on letters. This issue is pretty interesting. Um, I guess maybe if I'd been reading Karen Gillen's uh, Eternals all along, I would have realized who the narrator of this is. And I've talked about this before, how some, sometimes we get issues in these acts series where the dialogue or expositional boxes are, are uh, black with red lettering. That's the progenitor. That's this um, uh, celestial that's been sort of reborn and is judging the earth. When we see the black dialogue boxes with the blue lettering, that is the the Earth machine, the Earth itself, the AI that is the Earth. Um, and I, I didn't know that up until I, I think this issue, um, but it always has been. And I think, again, if I'd read that Eternals uh, series, I would have known. And so, uh, you know, I've said before, people that have been reading the Eternals series all along are probably getting more of this event than I was, but that's not to say that it doesn't make sense. And that's not to say that it's not really fantastic. Um, and I, I've talked about it at length before, so I won't get too much into it here, but what I will say is how much of what Kieran Gillen is doing this in this event makes me want to go back and read all that eternal stuff makes me want to go back and read all the eternal stuff. And so, I mean, this guy's doing his job. Kieran Gillen is doing his job in terms of making me interested in these characters, characters that I, I don't, really know or you know haven't known before i mean some of them i've seen obviously i'm familiar with cersei and ajak and and uh and icarus but some of these others um i'm like druig i had no idea who who druig was it just you know no clue uh this or you know earth machine this earth ai yeah don't don't have any idea so to make me so invested in these characters in the scope of this huge story is so 
interesting. And, and just the idea of calling it Axe, Avengers, X-Men, Eternals, but it's not, you know, Avengers versus X-Men versus Eternals. It's something so different than that. Um, you know, they're all sort of thrown into the same boat by the progenitor. They're all being judged. They've all got to come together to, to save mankind. But then, you know, what comes next? And not even just mankind, but mankind, mutant kind, all sentient life on Earth, right? So, uh, again, what's being done here is really interesting. And, again, if you've been reading Eternals all along, if you're a huge Karen Gillan fan or huge Eternals fan or just a huge Marvel fan, you read everything, you're, you you got to be getting a lot out of this. Um, I can't talk at all about what happens at the ending because, again, I I don't want to spoil. But, man, what happens – even me, who um, – you know, is not that familiar with these characters and, and this sort of situation. Even I was impacted by what happened at the end. Like it's a big, it's a big thing um, with uh, with Fastos and the the machine that is Earth, the, the artificial intelligence. Um, and there could be some some far reaching consequences. I have no idea what Marvel's plans are for the Eternals. I don't know if um, if Karen Gillan's Eternals series is continuing after this event. Um, but it's, it's going to be pretty pretty interesting because it's going to have long-lasting effects on the mutants as well. Krakoa and what comes next for them. Um, and obviously the Avengers. I mean, they, they were using the, the body that is the progenitor, the, the celestial. You know, he was a dead celestial, and that's what the Avengers were using as their base, right? Um, so clearly they're not going to be able to do that any longer. So, yeah, there's... There's going to be some lasting uh, effects from this this event. You know, oftentimes the, the hyperbole is, oh, after this event, the Marvel Universe will never be the same again. And, you know, we've heard that time and time again. This time, it's it's true. I mean, there are going to have to be some big changes. Um, so, uh, all right. Well, let me talk about the, the next uh, Marvel book, which is Avengers X-Men Eternals. Eternals. Uh, so, uh, there's three tie-ins this three uh, or three main books. I think even more than that, maybe four. Uh, but again, written by Kieran Gillen, Pascal Ferry is the artist on this one, Matt Hollinsworth on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. This one's uh, focused on Ajak herself. She's a member of the infiltration team that's gone inside Progenitor to try to find his um, auto self-destruct mechanism and, and trigger it. He's there with Wolverine and Mr. Sinister and Iron Man and, uh, Jean Grey and Cersei, um, and so th this one is this issue is is focused on Ajax and her role as an Eternal. She's one of the the most long lived Eternals. One of the, I think I think it was originally ten or twelve um, that were first created. So uh, there's a lot of context here. If you're not familiar with the Eternals or Ajax, uh, I think, and you're curious, this is a good issue to read because it gives a lot of context. It's, it doesn't necessarily give up like a flashback of Ajax history. Um, and Ajax at various times has been female and been male. Eternals, when they're reborn, can can change genders. Um, they probably change their gender, honestly, because they wanted to cast Selma Hayek uh, as Ajax in the um, MCU Eternals movie which I'm all for because Selma Hayek's super hot. So um, whatever, don't mind that. Maybe it's a little hypocritical. Usually I don't like when comics follow uh, what the movies are prompting, but but regardless, Ajax is an interesting character. B 
because she is so long lived and because of the choices that she's, she's had to make. And that's all, that's all here in the story. Um, and again, and presented by Kieran Gellin in a way that's really easy to understand who the character is, why she's so conflicted. Uh, and I can't go into it more than that. Cause again, I don't want to spoil, but this is great character work. This is fantastic character work for, uh, Ajak from Kieran Gillen and the art by Pascal Ferry is really strong as well. Um, so, uh, this, this journey for these characters through the body of the progenitor, um, and, and this choice overall for the, um, the event, this choice to have the progenitor judging these characters. It's been such a great decision from Marvel editorial. I don't know if it was how much it was them, how much it was Karen Gillen himself that sort of dreamed of this event, but what a great way to, to do these character studies, right? Like you can, you can do them as quickly as you want, or you can take your time and dedicate a whole issue to a particular character and, and really boil it down uh, to one specific character and, and, help the readers understand who that character is like in this issue where you get a real great understanding of who Ajax is because the progenitor is judging her. So who is this character in terms of their kind of their morality, what drives them, what motivates them? Um, are they a hero? Are they a villain or an antagonist? Are, are they worthy? Um, will we agree with what the progenitor chooses? Right. And you can do that in the course of a few panels showing them do a heroic act or, um, you know, making another choice, somebody like Sebastian Shaw who makes an immoral choice and you can kind of, you know, right there and understand the character and know who he is. So uh, again, fantastic choice, fantastic event. Uh, it's been my favorite Marvel event in, in a long, long time. So hope you guys are all enjoying it as much as I am. And um, yeah, I have a much better understanding of who Ajax is. I, I wouldn't have said that before I, I read this. I would have said, Ajax, well, I know she's an eternal uh, and she used to be a guy, you know, the character used to be a guy. Um, and that's about it. That's all I could have told you. Selma, Selma Hayek played her in the movie and that's all I could have told you. But now I know so much more about who she is, her inner conflicts, um, her sense of duty, her obligations, all that sort of, uh, all that sort of stuff. So again, fantastic job by Karen Gillen. All right, up next, another tie-in. This one is Axe Iron Fist from writer Alyssa Wong. Michael Yig and Marika Cresta are the artists. Chris Sotomayor on colors, Travis Lynam on letters. Uh, this is the judgment of the, the new Iron Fist, Lin Lai, as well as Loki. And of all, of all places, I expected Loki to show up and be judged. It was not in an Iron Fist book, but... I'm not that familiar with Lin Lai. I read a little bit of the most recent Iron Fist, not the most recent, but uh, where basically where Danny Rand gives up um, the mantle of Iron Fist and Lin Lai takes it over. And then I kind of fell off. Um, I don't know. It's one of those situations. Like I, I totally get it. And, and we, uh, we had a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, a white, a blonde white haired guy, uh, you know, taking on the role of Iron Fist and, uh, you know, somebody you would think would be an Asian character, martial arts, that sort of thing. And it, it really smacked of, um, of whitewashing in a lot of ways. And so in a way I liked that Marvel has given the mantle of Iron Fist to a character of Asian descent. But on the other hand, it's like, man, I, I really like Danny Rand, you know? And so I, I can see both sides, but, for me, it just, I mean, even 
as much as I like Danny Rand as a character, I, I wasn't going out and like buying every issue of, of a comic he was in. I, I don't have a run of, of Power Man and Iron Fist or anything like that. Um, so I'm just not a big Iron Fist fan in general, whether it's Lynn Lai or, or Danny Rand. And so, yeah, I, I kind of fell off of it. Um, and so when I was reading this, I, I sort of had an understanding of who Lin Lai is and what he's been going through and how he hasn't technically been christened a full Iron Fist yet. And that's all covered here. And again, it, Loki is not somebody I expected to be in here, but Alyssa Wong does a fantastic job of giving us a brief character study of Loki as well um, and reminding us of, of who he is. And um, I, I all the credit to Tom Hiddleston, the actor that plays Loki in the MCU, I think it's because of his great job that he did his portrayal of the character that made loki popular that he's loki's a little more of an anti-hero now than a straight-up villain like he used to be um which sort of makes sense i mean the whole idea in um you know in ancient uh, north mythologies he's the, the god of mischief right so he's not the god of evil so he's playing jokes and he's you know he's had his ups and downs uh, if you will and I think that's been portrayed well in the MCU and it's portrayed well uh, in recent um, Marvel history. So everything that happens in this issue, uh, I think Alyssa Wong does a good job of, uh, again, exploring who these characters are and giving us a better understanding, um, a better understanding of Loki for me than, than Lin Lai. I'm still not 100% sure who he is as a character, but that's on me because I haven't been reading as, as much of, um, of Iron Fist recently. Uh, but I will say this, if you pick up this issue and read it because it's an axe tie-in, you will 100% know if you want to go back and explore Iron Fist, um, Lin Lai's origin and how he, he got the mantle. And um, there's a whole sort of expanded um, roster of, uh, of Asian heroes that Marvel has been exploring lately with White Tiger and – or White Fox, rather – and uh and some other characters so i i think that's a very good thing and we know we have shang chi written by gene luen yang that's uh, expanding that cast as well so um there's plenty for for fans of uh of those characters and, uh, and characters of of asian descent which is great um and i couldn't tell you where danny rand is right now <laughs> to be honest so i uh, hope we haven't seen the last of him though uh all right Moving on, next book is uh, another Marvel. I don't know why they're all in this, or I didn't put them in any particular order, but apparently all the Marvel books are uh, are up front. But I promise I, I have some other stuff that's not Marvel. Um, but I was uh, really impressed with the latest issue of Ghost Rider, issue number seven, from writer Benjamin Percy. Corey Smith is the artist. Orin Jr. on inks. Brian Villains on colors. Travis Lanham on letters. We saw last issue that Wolverine literally cut out uh, this sort of demon or monster or what have you that was um, infesting Johnny Storm, uh, Johnny Storm, Johnny Blaze, uh, the Ghost Rider. And we sort of find out in this issue how that infestation happened. We see the fallout of Wolverine cutting the parasite out and kind of just leaving it behind in this burning bar. Uh, does it survive? Does it not survive? Um, and then we see who Johnny is now without that parasite influencing him um, as he tries to, to come back from that. So um, there's some other 
twists here that I, I won't get into because it's a pretty big twist, but I, I find it to be an interesting one. The Cordy Smith art is just so fantastic. A lot of montage pieces. Um, it's a good balance of giving us a sense of action and movement with some um, kind of horrific scene. I mean, there's it's Ghost Rider. There's devils. There's demons. There's um, evil supervillains that uh, are, are classic Ghost Rider villains that that show up here. And there's a new character as well. Um, so for speculators, you might want to pick up a copy because um, it'll be interesting to see uh, the, the character that Benjamin Percy creates here uh, is pretty interesting. And the core, the Corey Smith character design is really, really cool. So that's sort of the two main things you need, right? Like a cool origin and a kick-ass look and you can instantly become a fan favorite. So wouldn't surprise me at all to see this character really take off. Um, so pick this book up because I, I could see it, you know, because Rider is not one of those, that, you know, top selling titles. It just flies off the shelf. So I don't know how many copies are out there, but, uh, but pretty interesting premise, interesting start. And uh, yeah, I was, I, I really liked it. Really, really liked it. The cover is pretty awesome as well. Main cover. Uh, okay, up next, another Marvel book. Uh, Daredevil from writer Chip Zdarsky, Rafael Della Torre is the artist. Matthew Wilson on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Red Fist Saga Part 4, bit of a setup issue. We saw last issue that uh, Daredevil Matt Murdock had recruited uh, Cole North as well as Foggy Nelson to come with him to finally join uh, Electro Nachos and become a, a, the leaders of the fist, if you will. And they're finally going to once and for all take on the hand and, and take them out. He also learned last issue that the hand is being led by Frank Castle, who, you know, sort of a classic antagonistic relationship between uh, Matt Murdock and Frank Castle. So we'll see how that all comes to a head. Um, but yeah, this issue is a lot of setup. It's a lot of let's get these characters in place Let's see what their roles are going to be going forward. Um, and then uh, Electra and Matt have to go on a, a bit of a quest um, to establish sort of a new status quo for them, um, which is interesting. But I feel like the, the real battle against the hand is probably going to start next issue. So um, it, this is a, actually, a, even though I think it's probably the last issue of the arc, uh, it's actually a great jumping on point. Um because this Red Fist saga, um, you almost could call this the first three issues of the Red Fist saga or first three parts as, as sort of the prelude to the actual battle, maybe even the, the first four here. Um, let's let's sort of tie up all the loose ends from Devil's Reign. Let's establish uh, who the Fist is. We found out last issue the Storm Winds, the uh, sort of evil corporate siblings uh, who try to buy up all of hell's kitchen they're working hand in hand with uh no pun intended with uh, the hand and so what is that about what what do they have planned um because matt knows if you give the hand those sort of unlimited financial resources that the storm winds bring then there's got to be more going on than meets the eye uh, thus foggy, thus coal north, um, and uh, again setting setting everybody up to 
to really start the battle in earnest. So uh, talked before about what a fantastic writer Chip Zdarsky is, uh, what an emotional uh, writer, but what's so interesting, what he does is, you know, early on in this, well, not in this run, because we started over the new, new number one after Devil's Reign, but early on in his Daredevil run, it, it, the, what he did, his his run was so emotional. Um, we got so much angst from Matt um, as he was trying to heal from the all the damage that was done to him in the Charles Soule run and, and questioning whether he could still be Daredevil. Um, and Zdarsky like, front-loaded all that emotion um and now we see that emotion sort of simmering below the surface we know it's still there because it's been established by zadarsky but it it gives him the freedom to focus on the action and to, to keep it fast paced and we don't necessarily need as many character moments because we got so many of them early on in the run um and it, i say that to say that zadarsky was clearly playing the long game here so uh I love what he's doing with Daredevil. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Charles Soule. I loved his Daredevil run, especially the a lot of the courtroom stuff and legal maneuverings. Um, and I was sad that when he got taken off the book, but uh, man, this Zdarsky run has been fantastic. Uh, so all credit to, to Chip. Uh, all right. I'm going to skip because I don't want to, I've got multiple more Marvels to talk about, but let's move over to independent and I'll, I'll circle back to some Marvels. Um, we have the return of chicken devil volume two. Uh, this is from writer Brian uh, Bucciolato. Mattia Monaco is the, the new artist as opposed to Hayden Sherman, who was on the last volume. And then Hassan Otsman El how is, uh, is the letter. So it, the first volume of chicken devil, so much fun, right? Like you can't help, but, or at least I couldn't help but think of of Breaking Bad, this sort of everyday guy that's in over his head and um, turns to a life of crime sort of out of necessity, sort of forced into it. It's not necessarily something that he would uh, he would choose for himself, um, but it, it, it makes it so interesting. So the second volume is actually called Chicken Devils, and uh, – it's all the same characters, including the detectives that were um, investigating the, the murders and the drug deals and the explosions and whatnot that happened in the, in the first issue. So um, I can't really say much more about, about it than that, other than this, this second volume, there are consequences to what happened in the first volume, right? With, uh, with Mitch and his family and the choices that he made. So if if the first series hadn't sold as well, we might not have gotten a second series, and, and that would have been fine because the first series ended on um, a satisfying conclusion, and you didn't necessarily need to think about those loose ends. But now that we do have a second volume, what Booch is doing, uh, what Brian Buccioletto is doing, is he's showing us, yeah, that there are there are consequences, there are there is fallout, there are uh, things going on internally with Mitch's family based on the things that happened. Um, there are things going on with the, the criminals who, uh, who Mitch attacked basically. Um, there are things going on with the cops that were investigating him. So yeah, there it, it's not, it's not some nice little neat mastermind 
plan that Mitch enacted that left him free and clear, right? Like, again, he's a guy that had, had no experience as a, as a criminal or, um, you know, no special forces training to, to take on this, this gang of Russian mobsters that he went after. So it makes sense that things are messy and that there's, um, a lot of fallout. And that's what the second volume is, uh, exploring. And uh, it still has the same like fast paced reverence that the first issue did, uh, first volume did. And it still has the same feel of a guy in over his head doing the best he can that the, uh, that the first volume had. So um, pick up the first volume and trade. If you haven't read it, you'll absolutely love it. And then pick up a uh, pick up volume two. plenty of time to pick up this first issue tomorrow, read the trade and be all caught up before issue two comes out. Uh, all right. Up next from image seven sons, part five from writers, uh, Robert Windham and Kelvin Mao art by Jay Lee colors by June Chung letters by crank. This is a story about a guy we found out last issue that actually used cloning to clone some people and uh, have seven individuals that look all the same, basically. And it's that uh, Native American prophecy of the seventh son of a seventh son will have these incredible supernatural powers. Um, and this guy, Nicholas, has uh, he wrote a book uh, about a prophecy uh, for seven sons and it became a religion and that religion in a lot of ways shapes the world. Um, they say you have freedom of religion and, and you can still choose other uh, forms of religion, but that's not actually true in this world that this religion has, has sort of taken over. Uh, even though there are still governments, this religion has sort of taken over as the, the ruling party of the, the world. It's so powerful. You know, it's, it's like the Catholic church at, at the height of its powers influencing everything political and cultural and societal. Um, and then in this particular issue, as, as things start to unravel, um, because some of the, the characters in the book, some of these sons have are realizing the truth. Um, Nicholas is doing all he can to sort of hold it together. So the story has gone from this sort of philosophical pseudo religious type book exploring what it means um, to have faith and belief and um, and, and almost in a way pointing out the, the inherent flaws in religion, right? Like in my mind, religion is so separate from belief, right? Like you can believe in a higher power, you can believe in a God, you can believe in, in whatever you want. And that's something so personal, right? And nobody can know exactly what you believe or what you think and and that sort of thing. And it's, it's very individualized and that, and it's something that, you know, maybe we all desire to, because we're social animals to be, to feel like we're part of something bigger than we are. Right. And it can be an agent for good. But then when you talk about religion, right now, you talk about establishing rules for belief. People are told what to believe. And there's all these, the rules are in the Catholic church called dogma. Um, you know, you, you can't work on the Sabbath and you've got to go to church on these specific days and you've got to, you know, whatever the rules are of, of particular religion, that is a man-made thing, right? Like all those rules were created by men, uh, whether they claim that they've been told by their God or their deity or whoever that these are the rules. And there's no way to know for sure, but 
for the most part, we can say that, that those rules were created by men, uh, by humans. And so by that very nature, because we all as humans are imperfect and we're flawed, you have to take all those rules with a grain of salt and be willing to say that every single one of those rules, whatever it might be, um, they're wrong. They're misinterpreted. They're misapplied. They, they're just made up nonsense. And, and to me, that's the difference between, you know, faith and, or belief and, and religion, right? Um, more people have been killed in the name of religion than, than anything, anything else. Like religion has called, caused more wars and more death, more destruction on this planet than, than anything, maybe with the exception of climate change, but we're not there yet. Um, and that's a lot of what I feel like was being explored in Seven Sons to start. But now we're at the point where the action is happening, like the the, the crap is hitting the fan, as it were. Um, and so it, this, the pace of the story is picking up and it does feel like it's we're getting to the climax. We're getting to uh, more toward the end of the story. Uh, the Jay Lee art, it does suit the story. I, I can't really picture. I mean, we're what five issues in now it's, it's hard to picture uh, uh, this story as drawn by somebody else by now. Um, but I've talked before about how, what a different feel it would have. Um, there is a little bit of a kind of, a, I don't want to say a supernatural feel, but I mean, Jay Lee's art, it's very stylized, right? It's very almost esoteric in a way, um, especially the way he draws faces. The features are so small and his lines are so fine. This doesn't feel like a like a realistic world in a lot of ways it's it's gritty it's gritty in a way that i'm not used to seeing jaylee's art um and that works for kind of the world that uh that Wyndham and mao have created here but such an interesting choice for uh an artist so i'm, I'm all in on this series it's very interesting it, uh, i think it's a book that you you pick up at the shop and you flip through and you know you know right away from from the art and the style and even the visual pacing, whether or not it's a book you'll be into or not. So um, I do like it when writers are able to get artists on the book that uh, are so perfectly suited um, visually that it can be conveyed by just flipping through it because then it, it gives anybody a chance who might be interested um, to be able to pick it up and flip through it and, and know right away whether or not they're, uh, they're going to be interested or not. So, uh, all right, let's pivot back over to Marvel Another axe tie-in. This is part two of the taking of Baxter one two three four, Invisible Women. It's Fantastic Four number forty-eight from writer David Pepos. Juan Cabal is the artist. Jesus Arbatov on colors. Joe Caramani on letters. Uh, I said it last issue. Really love David Pepos on the Fantastic Four. I hope he gets the chance to write some more of them. This two-parter has definitely focused on how badass Sue Richards is, and how formidable she is. Um, and he also really leans into the familial aspect, what each of the different members of the Fantastic Four bring to the team. The Juan Cabal art is gorgeous. The colors are fantastic. There's a Kafu main cover that's amazing. Um, so this book, it really nails it on all aspects, even to the point of, um, of uh, uh, Abulet Midas, who's the villain here. Um the way that is resolved, the way the conflict with her is resolved is so classically fantastic for, and it's a, it's a reminder that when it's at its best, fantastic four 
isn't a superhero book. It's a family book about adventure, right? About these characters going on adventures and their relationships with, with each other. Now, we know that there's another Fantastic Four coming up with the new number one, a new volume of Fantastic Four written by Ryan North. Um, and he's talked about how he's going to separate them. At least when they start, the different members are going to be out on their own. And he says he wants to do something different with Fantastic Four than, than has ever been done before. And I, so I can respect that and I can understand that. You know, I was just talking before about the tendency to, to repeat yourself or um, having to make the story super complex because these characters have been around forever and you don't want to repeat. You're trying not to repeat things that have been done before. So I, I get it. But at the same time, this issue is a perfect reminder of what the Fantastic Four is and what a, a great job Dan Slott has done on it. Because much like Peppo's here, Slot was focused on the adventure side of it. It felt more like an adventure book than a superhero book. And it always felt like a family book. And if you're going to separate these characters and, and tell solo stories of them, then is it really the Fantastic Four? Like, can that work? I, I guess we're going to find out. But in the meantime, read this two-parter by uh, David Peppos because it is fantastic. And it's definitely a must read for anybody who's in uh, a Sue Richards or an Invisible Woman fan. Uh, okay. Janice Bell, Captain Marvel, issue number four is up next from writer Peter David. Juan and Ramirez is the artist. Frederico Bli on colors. Ariana Mare on letters. Uh, real briefly, the majority of this issue is just a big fight be between Shatterax and Janice Bell that happened in the past that gives context to what's going on um, currently with Rick Jones' wife, Marlo, being trapped on the Cree homeworld. Um I am not familiar enough with Genesville and all the things that he's gone through. Um, but again, much like the Eternals uh, event, um, if, if you are familiar with Genesville, you're going to get a lot more out of this. That being said, do you need to have read that stuff previously to understand this? No. Um, you can pick this up because I haven't read most of that. Uh, that stuff. And I, I picked this up and I've read it and I understand what's going on and it's a lot of action. Um, but we're not getting a whole lot of characterization with Janice Fell um, because it is moving so fast. So I hope, uh, I think the last issue, next issue, issue five is the last issue. So I hope we get a chance um, in the final issue to get a little more characterization and understand uh, where Genesville is at, but um, I will say that I, I really love the the Rick Jones characterization we get from Peter David, but that's not a big surprise based on the fact that Peter David wrote uh, the Hulk for so long. So it is fun. It is action-packed. Just don't know how memorable, memorable it's going to be in the long run and, and if um, how true it is to, to Genesville, because again, I haven't read a lot of his stuff. So uh, let's move on. Stonehenge, book one, The Dragon and the Boar, part four. This is from Liam Sharp. He writes it, he draws it, he letters it. And man, is it gorgeous. Um, and Liam even gives us some of his more traditional pencil style in a few pages in this one with with all the detail. And that he's so talented. Uh, you know, we've got the fantastical, uh, almost Frazetta or Dave McKean inspired uh, uh, inspired uh, painted pages, 
but for fans of Liam who love his work on like uh, Batman, Wonder Woman, Brave and the Bold or Wonder Woman, um, th- this penciled style is going to seem familiar to you. As far as the story goes, oh, man, it, it's so huge in scope and yet balanced with intimacy and humor, which I love, right? Because we're focusing on just a couple of young kids, uh, you know, early 20s um, who are descendants of king arthur and you know the myth of king arthur at, at various times we talk about stonehenge and is was it a landing platform for aliens and all that stuff. so liam has built something here that is so interesting that pulls in all these different aspects of things that that he finds interesting in his own heritage as um, as somebody who's from the uk so when we talk about merlin and we talk about time travel and we talk about space explorers and we talk about magic um, and monsters and super science. And that's all rolled into this epic story with gorgeous art. But the thing that really makes it work, the thing that keeps it from feeling pretentious or overwrought or, um, uh, or just too dense to, to really um, be relatable is the humor with which the narration of the story happens. Um, and that has been consistent throughout. It's that humor. It's that kind of self-deprecating style that the narrator has th- that keeps us from taking it too seriously. Um, and I give, I give Liam a ton of credit for making that choice because that can't be an easy choice to make, right? Like in a way you're sort of poking fun at your own work. And I, I know this is something that, uh, Liam has, uh, it's a dream project for him, something he's been wanting to have out there in the world for a long, long time. And so I imagine there, there may have been a temptation to, hey, I've got to treat this really super serious and, you know, give it my all. So a brave choice to uh, inject that humor, that, um, that relatability into the narrator. So, um, this is fantastic. I don't hear enough people talking about it in terms of how good it is. I hope it gets nominated for awards because it's deserving. And I hope it sells really, really well in trade. Um, because again, it's that narration style. I mean, when you, when you look at the art, I can see how uh, it looks so different. And so um, I don't want to say strange, but, but so epic in scope that you could be worried that the story would be really dense. But again, that narration style that Liam has chosen um, just brings it all home. And uh, I hope it does really, really well in trade because I want, I want the rest of the story. I want the whole thing. I'm selfish like that. Uh, Anyway, uh, up next, we have another image titled the least we can do. This is the second issue. It's from writer Yolanda Zanfardino and co-creator artist, Alisa Rombali. There's a, a couple of variant covers by Stefan Sedgwick that are fantastic. Uh, and this is just a, a really fun book. Think of uh, kind of like Harry Potter in a way. Um, there's a world of, um, of a ruling uh, class, if you will, after uh, some sort of post-apocalyptic event happened. And uh, and they've sort of outlawed magic and, and powers and what have you because they're worried that it, it causes chaos and it can lead to the, the ultimate destruction of the human race. But there is a rebellion that, that believes that um, 
that magic can be used for good and it can help the recovery and, and it can help um, sort of uh, shrink that gap between the haves and the have nots, the, the ruling class that sort of calls the shots for um, the, uh, the people that are in, enforcing the law and enforcing this, this no magic rule. So in that world, um, the, the characters, they, they sort of focus their magic or, or draw their magic from these, um, these artifacts. And we learn about what they are. Um, they call them mediums. And we learn about a few of the different mediums in this issue. Um, and they're sort of uh, mineral based, right? Like we've got one that's uh, a life jewel, which is from the salt crystal medium. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've got a quartz medium, which is a rhythm gem. We've got um, a dream source medium, a, a void stone, which comes from coal. So, and they all have different aspects to, to what they do and how the wielder can sort of channel power, draw power from them. And there, there's also a gold medium, which is uh, a bit more rare. So, uh, what a lot of people don't know, it, a lot of people in the story itself, is that this this main character Uriel, she is actually we so learned this in the first issue, so it's not a spoiler. She's actually from a family of like a high ranking official in, in the, the the ruling class, um, and she's sort of run away from home. And she has a gold medium that she's struggling to to tap into and control, but her heart's in the right place, and she's she's sort of caught between two worlds. Um, and she's sort of our POV character. And um, this feels very, you know, fantasy influenced. It feels very young, uh, relatable for young readers because Uriel is trying to define herself, um, you know, find her place in the world and, and make a difference. And I think a lot of young people can relate to that. The art is uh, very suitable to that. Uh, tons of action interesting the way things are drawn with these mediums and uh, the sort of ragtag rebellion here that is uh, trying to to, uh, to mount and, uh, a resistance to the ruling class. So there's a lot here. Uh, I was a big fan of, um, of what these two creators did on a thing called Truth, which was kind of a, a buddy road trip type story. Um, bit of a romance. This is very different from that, um, but so high quality. Like the art is fantastic. The colors are great. Uriel is very likable. Um, it just, just feels big. Uh, feels big in scope. And like I said, I, I get a big Harry Potter vibe. So if you're a fan of Harry Potter, I definitely would uh, would suggest picking this up um, because it it's got that same sort of youthful exuberance that uh, Harry Potter does when it's at its best. Uh, all right, let's pivot back over to Marvel. We have Punisher War Journal. I think this is issue, uh, it's issue number one. Uh, it's from writer Torin Gronbeck, Raphael T. Pemmental is the artist, Matt Miller on colors, Corey Petit on letters. Uh, Frank Castle is the fist of the beast, um, and he's doing what he does best one step ahead of the criminals, although maybe they don't realize it. Um, and we get him battling against a, one of his most classic foes in this issue. So um, I got to be honest, that being said, I'm not sure why 
Marvel chose to to have Torn Grunbeck write this. Maybe she just wanted to. Like I don't I don't know. It feels it feels strange because we've been getting Punisher and Jason Aaron's Punisher. Not to say this isn't good. It's really good. It's fun. It's it's classic Punisher. It's it's him at his most brutal and it, he is at that same point that he's at in the Jason Aaron book. You know, this isn't a flashback. This isn't a, an Elseworlds tale or, um, you know, before he changed his skull on his chest or um, or before he became uh, a member of the hand. No, all, all that is, you know, this is in current Marvel continuity time. Um, and it's a lot of fun. But is it necessary? Mm, I don't know. There doesn't seem to be any seeds planted here for anything going forward. So if you're looking for a standalone, awesome um, Punisher story with his current status quo, you could do a lot worse than than pick this up and, and read it. Uh, it's a reminder of just how formidable Frank Castle is. Uh, and that battle against him in one of his, um, maybe his most known nemesis is is pretty fantastic. So. Uh, okay, up next is Love Everlasting. We're up to issue three on this book. It's from writer Tom King. Elsa Charretier is the artist. Matt Hollinsworth does the colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, I read this book with a, like a sense of, of trepidation or impending doom. Um, I've come to learn that that Tom King will pull the rug out from under me in a story at any moment, sort of unexpectedly. And so I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop in this book. Um, it's basically the story of this girl named Joan who keeps hopping around into different romance stories, if you will. She doesn't know how, she doesn't know why, and she's being pursued by somebody who wants to kill her. Um, and what's fascinating to me is how interested and how compelling a the story is how interested I am in it and how I'm sort of hanging on every page, just waiting. Clearly there's something more going on than meets the eye, but I just don't know what it is. And I'm just waiting for it to happen. Um, and so I really enjoy that feeling. I'm not sure how Tom and Elsa are doing it. And the art is fantastic, right? Like it's this, this sort of classic romance comic style with a really thick line. And, and typically I don't really care for that style of art, but it's just the perfect style. Much like Jay Lee on Seventh Sons that I was talking about earlier, this is the perfect style of art for this story. And I can't imagine anybody other than Elsa doing it and her using any style but this. So um, the thing that I, I question and I wonder about is can this title sustain once we do find out what's going on or is Tom King and, and Elsa playing the long game and the twist will come slowly or we'll get multiple twists. Like just when we think we know what's going on, we get the rug pulled out from us again. Like I'm not sure. And that's the fun. That's the fun of this title. So uh, another great book from, uh, from Tom King in my mind. Okay, last book I'm going to talk about in detail. It's Immortal X-Men number seven. This is from writer Kieran Gellin. Lucas Wernock is the artist. David Curiel on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. There's a fantastic 
main cover uh, showcasing Wolverine from Mark Brooks. I mean, it maybe is one of my favorite Mark Brooks covers of all time. Like it is fantastic. Um, Wolver, uh, Nightcrawler t- teleporting toward us, uh, smaller and getting bigger as he, uh, as he gets closer to us, uh, closer to the foreground. And we, we see all the smoke and the brimstone from his teleportation behind him. Um, and, and the story is narrated the issue is narrated by Nightwing, uh, Nightwing, Nightcrawler, and uh, we get a real great understanding of who Kurt is currently. Like he's not being judged by the progenitor here, um, but just like in those issues where characters are being judged, like I've talked about, what fantastic character studies they've been with this issue being told through the perspective of Kurt Wagner. It still has that same um, that same outcome, that same feel of being a, a, a real good look at who Kurt is as a character and uh, how self-aware Kurt is of how he sort of has a different perspective himself and he's aware of it. Like it's very meta, right, with the world on the brink of um, of extinction in terms of sentient beings, the, the anger that he feels toward this progenitor. Um, and his doubts, like Kurt has always been somebody who's been really strong in his faith, uh, and believes in, uh, mankind, the, the goodness of man or the goodness of mutant kind and that sort of thing. And, and maybe should he be questioning that? So if you've been reading this and you know, um, the big moment we got on the last page, the last panel of the, of the last, um, Acts Judgment Day main series, we, we get a little bit of context for that here. Um, we get a lot of Kurt and we get Kurt on a, a mission where he goes to recruit somebody else who may be able to help with stopping the progenitor once and for all. And, and that's all I'm going to say, because again, I don't want to spoil, but um, like it, this book, I would be buying based on the cover alone. Uh, I mean, this is one of the most beautiful covers ever and uh, it's just absolutely fantastic. So a uh, big fan of, uh, of what Karen Gillan's doing on this event and on mortal X-Men and uh, of that Mark Burke's cover. And the inside art is, uh, is fantastic as, as well. Um, you get a real sense of action that a lot happens in these, in these pages. Uh, you know, I've talked about how the structure of the event that Karen Gillan has chosen has uh, done a fantastic job of, of, making it feel like we're not missing anything. When you have these ideas for these events and they become so big, it can get choppy. Um, and Kieran Gillen has avoided that. So uh, kudos to him for that. Uh, but yeah, the Lucas Wernack line work, um, like I was a big fan of, of Lucas on the, the Trial of Magneto series. I think it was the first time I remember seeing his name. Um, and with all the action and all the, uh, Nightcrawler teleportation and everything, all the so many characters in this book. Um, and Lucas doesn't doesn't drop the ball. He nails it. Um, if I have any sort of nitpick or wish, it would just be that I, I almost wish that this was like full size pages in terms of like I want to see. And, and again, Lucas probably works digitally, but I want to see this blown up. Like I want I want it bigger you know, so I can see more of that, that line work. Um, Cause Lucas just did a fantastic job. So 
All right, let me give a rundown on some other books you might want to be on the lookout for today, in addition to the ones that I talked about um, from Boom Studios. There's a new title from Jeremy Hahn called Approach. Number one, I have no idea what it's about, but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to checking it out. At DC, again, you can go listen to our DC Spotlight to hear about these. We have Batgirls number 11, Batman Incorporated number one, Batman Urban Legends number 20, that has two fantastic stories in it. Uh, I mean, all the stories are, are solid, but there's two that are as good as anything that's been in Batman Urban Legends so far. Uh, we also have Batman versus Robin number two, Dark Crisis, World Without a Justice League, Green Arrow number one. The uh, DC Halloween special this year is called DC Terrors Through Time. Flash, The Fastest Man number two of three, which is the movie prelude. Uh, Future State Gotham comes to an end with issue number 18. Uh, Jurassic League also comes to an end with issue number six. We've got the latest issue of Superman, Son of Kal-El, which is number 16. And then Wonder Woman number 792 is also out this week. Uh, over at IDW, Dark Space's Wildfire number four is out. Uh, I think that's the final issue of that series. And we'll be talking about issue two of that pretty soon on a special episode, along with some other Best Jacket titles. Uh, from Image, do a powerbomb number 507 from Daniel Warren Johnson. Uh, we've got a Hex Slash special called Hot Shots, number one. Uh, Halloween Party, also one shot. Uh, Hitomi, number one of five, is a new series that's kicking off. Uh, Spawn is up to issue number 334. And then over at Marvel, in addition to the books I talked about, we've got Black Panther, number 10. We've got Gambit, number four of five. We've got Star Wars number 28, Star Wars The High Republic gets a new number one, and then there's also something called Star Wars Visions that's kicking off. Uh, also a Wakanda miniseries called Wakanda 1, uh, it's issue 1 of 5. Uh, Venom's up to issue 11, and Wolverine is on issue 25. Uh, and that's going to do it for uh, a few of the other books you might want to be on the lookout for. So I hope you guys all get a chance to get out to your comic shops. Uh, there is a uh, another title in the Skybound uh, Young Comet line that's coming out today called Sea Serpent's Heir, Pirate's Daughter. Uh, I have an interview with the uh, writer of that book, uh, Margaret Scott. Uh, that episode's also coming out today, so be sure and uh, and check that out. And that's um, that's a fantastic book. Fantastical world, magic, and sea serpents. And I got a real Pirates of Dark Water vibe from that, if you're a fan of that. So go listen to the episode. Check out the book if you're so inclined. I, I do recommend it. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. We appreciate you listening as always, and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. 
All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.